0: podcast 007 discussion with Larry Korn about Masanobu Fukuoka sponsored by my buddies at com. uh they sell food preservation tools produce prepare preserve your own harvest I've turned this thing on all right so where so, so that where where was that this, they didn't no. get where was, where was that? Okay. I was talking about the first time that
1: Masanobu Fukuoka and Bill Mollison met. And that was at Brighton Bush Hot Springs in around 1983 or 1984. And they met together for about an hour in one of the cabins and chatted. I had already given Fukuoka some background about permaculture and about who Bill was and what the purpose. We were on our way to the second international permaculture convergence
2: Mm.
1: that was at uh, Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Mm. And it's interesting that the second, the first one of course was held in Australia where permaculture originated and the second one right here in the Pacific Northwest. It shows you what a special place the Pacific Northwest has in the development of permaculture worldwide. We're just that cool. <laughs> you know, that's, there's a lot of reasons. We're cool. There's a <laughs> lot of creative people here, willing to try new things, open to do things. There was also the tilt network was here, so this information got was easy to t- disseminate. It and because the conditions are so conducive to permaculture, and you create when you create a try to put this in practice well, with all the rainfall and the mild temperatures, it, you, you get results more quickly. Things happen a lot more quickly than in arid places. So everything was right for permaculture to come to the northwest. So, so when the conversation finally came, Bill spent most of the time talking about that part of permaculture, which is probably the farthest from Fukuoka's Form of farming, which is the earthworks part, where he's talking about using tractors and front end loaders to build dams and, and uh, key line stuff. And it was all about using heavy equipment and uh, so different from Fukuoka's experience on small land, small scale, using hand tools. And so it was just. It was just funny. I can't say that it was a good thing or a bad thing. It just was. And afterwards, Fukuoka was kind of scratching his head and going, boy, if that's permaculture,
2: <laughs>
1: I'm not sure what I'm
0: doing here.
2: <laughs>
0: so then he came to the United States to, like, hear about permaculture or what? No, he came to the United States. That was
1: his second trip. The first trip was right after One Star Revolution was published, which was 78. He came in 79 at the invitation of um, Herman Ihara, who was a macrobiotic fellow. He and his wife had a place in uh, um, Oroville, California, where they taught macrobiotics, the cooking, and, the, and so forth. And To Herman and to Michio Kushi, the other main macrobiotic teacher in the United States at that time, who was in Boston, with an institute with his wife the, uh, the, the macrobiotics think that Fukuoka is the only person that 's growing food correctly and according to the principles of macrobiotics he 's like a star to that to that in that world,
2: so they invited
1: him to come to the United States and he came and we toured around the northwest and uh, all over California and we went to Massachusetts and went to the summer camp that was at Amherst. Massachusetts, that Michio Kushi was doing. So he wanted to see about the American farming, and he was frankly shocked when he saw the condition of the land, especially California, which he took one look at and said, Oh my God, what are they doing here? <laughs> you know, they're, they're turning this place into a desert. This is, you know, and wherever he went, except perhaps, okay, the Olympic Mountains, when he went to the Rainforest in the Olympics, he said, oh, I feel like now I'm home. But 95% of the land has been already had the, has felt the effects of human activity, let's say. And in a place like California, where it's more fragile because of the rainfall situation, it's turning into a desert faster than it is in Oregon and Washington. But we're on the
0: same road. Now the thing, my impression is that from what little I know, and I wasn't there and you were there, Mm Is that one of the things that where it was the um, probably the most offensive to him was uh, the American lawn, the the so they, there'd be like I mean basically it's this monocrop hem lawn and yeah. nothing else growing there only lawn and right. then and then the general concept of I would guess landscaping.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so um, these were offensive things, you know. They were. On the,
1: on the large scale, what he was offended by was agriculture, the plowing and monoculture, and also uh, cutting too many trees and grazing too many animals. Those were the main things that were they, they, turning California into a desert. But with landscaping, you, you got it just right. He, he referred to lawns as artificial green or green concrete. Because it's just like paving over what nature is trying to do there,
0: right? And it's, it's, yeah, and weeds popping up in the lawn—that's nature trying to do her nature thing. Well, his his idea about uh, about uh,
1: eco terrorism—he
2: uh-huh. said you
1: you put seeds of mustard and clover and dandelions in your pocket with a little tiny hole, and then walk around on the golf courses. <laughs> And, and he said, "Make and and pay special attention to the really smooth area near the flag."
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, to him. I'll tell you one funny story about Los Angeles. When okay. I when I when he left to go back to Japan after his first trip, we were in the airport, and he said, "Larry, thank you above all for bringing me to Los Angeles." Sensei, what do you mean? You know, we went to the Olympic Mountains. you visited all these farmers. We went to beautiful places and he said well i I never dreamed that people could possibly be this out of touch with nature and he was mainly referring to this one woman that topped it off was this one woman. he was very friendly. Fukuoka loved talking to people, and he didn't he wanted to know everything about you and he didn't care if you were necessarily a farmer or an artisan or if you made, you know worked at a cafe anyways talking to this one woman and he said." He asked her, well, you know, there's like 14 million people living in the greater Los Angeles area, and it's essentially a desert. Uh, How does it feel to live in a place where it rains so little? And she answered him, said, oh, I hate it when it rains. It's so inconvenient.
2: (laughs) And he thought that
1: was the ultimate.
2: You know, somebody's
1: living. When we came in, we, we flew from Boston to Los Angeles. And it took the route that took us over, you know, Texas and New Mexico, and it's desert, desert, desert for hours, and desert, desert, and then all of a sudden Los Angeles. My parents picked us up at the airport, and we decided to drive back, not on the freeway, through Beverly Hills and Brentwood and the kind of fancy part of town. Hmm. He was looking out the window, and he was going, "Oh, she, this is horrible. Look, it's not only do they move to the desert, but they put in tropical plants and ferns and lawns that require extra water. So he was aware of all of that. But then his wife was looking out the window on the other side, and she's going Ashi. means wonderful. And she's saying, it's, "Look what people have done! They've, all these people moved to the desert, and look what a beautiful environment they've managed to make for themselves." <laughs> 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 let's move here, <laughs> <laughs> or let's make it pleasant for us. So she was very much the average, you know, seeing the world in the, in a, right, according to the way that the average Japanese person does. Fukuoka's wife kind of not on the whole uh, natural farming. No, she way? was she was not. She was no, just a typical <laughs> person. It was they met through an arranged marriage, yeah. and he pretty much. Lived, you know, he was driven by this vision that he had when he was in his mid 20s. And all he wanted to do was ex- show, explain to people how this idea could be of real practical value to humanity. He was driven by that thought every day. His family was not. His family just lived in the village and wanted to live like typical Japanese. And he spent all of his time working on these experiments and living in a hut in the orchard, while they grew up in the village in the house in the village. And frankly, they they still hold a grudge about the fact that he neglected them. The kids grew up essentially with a kind of a slightly absent
0: father. Father, yeah, yeah. So. But they, but but they, even though the, their father was absentee, they 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 preferred the village than going out to you know. Did they kind of think oh, their absolutely. dad was, was was a bit nuts?
1: Well, I think every, almost everybody did in his village. Yeah. So so not a good word.
0: And 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 now, <laughs> and and now that years have passed and he's been revered as a genius. Well, what happened was one star revolution. You know, Japan
1: was not the most fertile ground for the his. Ideas to spread. You know, people in Japan, we're, we all do things together, and their mission, as far as agriculture, is to follow the uh, the program that the agricultural co-op. You know, that every village, every area, every county has a government agency which tells the farmers what they're going to plant that year and what on what date and when everything's gonna happen and how much fertilizer to use and so forth. And everybody follows the program. And what Fukuoka's idea seemed to be well, a step backward, in a way, it's like going back, oh, we don't wanna farm the old way and we can't get yields was the constant thing and we could never get yields. But they remembered when he was experimenting and he did have some years that were lean and some times when he only got 40 or 50% yield. And people would sort of laugh at him and say, "You can't even grow rice, the simplest thing in the world." <laughs> but by the time I went to his farm in the mid seventies, he had already been practicing natural farming for more than twenty five years, and he had pretty much worked out the rotation so that his yields were the same or greater than his neighbor's yields and the, and and he grew rice you know the the productivity of a farm in Japan is judged by the yield of rice, so that's on that basis the gold standard. How much rice can you grow per per quarter acre?
0: But he yeah. also I want to I want to I want to stop you and make make something absolutely clear because for all the stuff that I put out, you know, I, I get the, uh, the the naysayer poopy pants people coming and 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 poking holes in things. So I yes. just want to make something absolutely clear. First, is rice production per acre was equal to or greater than his neighbors, which were using conventional techniques, including um, uh, uh, synthetic pesticides. That's right. Okay, and then on top of that, he also produced on the Mm -hmm. exact same land, a crop of barley. That's correct. Notice how I had to be very clear. Do you know why I said that? Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. But I was there, I saw it, and I, it was just obvious that his yields were... You could look at the crop you, next door. And you could see that, well... All right, kick
0: back on your eyes. Did you guys line up on the fence and go neener, neener? I'm not sure. No.
1: Maybe there's more <laughs> Japanese approach to that. <laughs> we didn't
0: do that. Did did you moon them? Maybe uh, you know, I was, maybe in private
1: while we were you know <laughs> dancing around the campfire up in the little hut, but not in the village. We not would okay. never oh, do that. Okay. that that would probably be inappropriate. Yeah, let me finish your thought because this okay. is perhaps the the main point. So Fukuoka had this idea, this inspiration. He tried to explain it to other people, and they couldn't understand what he was talking about, and he decided the only way what he would do is go back to his farm, his father's farm which he inherited, apply this way of thinking to agriculture to show its practical usefulness. So 25 years later he he proved it because he's getting yields of rice that are equal plus he's getting an a entire crop of barley and he's not using chemicals. He's not using tractors, therefore you don't need the factory to make the tractors, and you don't need the fossil fuel, and you don't need the herbicides and the pesticides. And here's the kicker, he's also building up equity because the condition of the soil is actually improving every year, and the neighbor's soil condition of the soil is going downhill. So besides just the yield, it's actually much more than that, getting yield in other ways.
0: Now, now maybe as you eat some of your breakfast,
2: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> then I'll I'll go on to my, my little thing is, is the, the thing that I like about <laughs> that particular tidbit of information is that I, I hear from people who are waving their eco flag uh, long and hard and proud, and then they tell me, but, but boy, damn it, it sure sucks that um, if we all switched over to organic, that three quarters of the world's population would starve to death. So you can't embrace organic for everybody because that would lead lead to a lot of dead people, and I might be on the dead people list. Um, and and to me, it's kind of like, man, you just are not familiar with the works of Masanobu Fukuoka, because rice is like one of the biggest staples in the world. And so, if nothing else, here's a guy. He's not just doing it organic. He's way, way beyond what people call organic. And on on top of that, not only is he got higher. Production of rice per acre, but he's also pulling a second crop off of the same land each year. So I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe one could even uh, say something like uh, uh, he's he's got double the. I mean, we can we can double the population of the world. If we use Fukuoka's technique and feed even more people. Um, but the but the important part is is that is that we can be or you know organic techniques can. Feed the world better than conventional techniques. So, okay. Now, uh, this would be a good no, point. Okay. One, one thing about okay, that. that. One
1: time, I was, uh, I had been farming for about two years on a agricultural, kind of a uh, commune in the mountains north of Kyoto, when we were using the organic practices that they had used in Japan all the way until World War II. No chemicals and so forth. But we were still plowing and doing the cover crops and, and things like that. So about two months after I had come to Fukuoka's place, I asked him. You know, I was kind of proud of the fact that we were organic. There wasn't much organic going on there. So I asked him what he thought about organic farming. You know, that's a good thing, don't you think? Yeah. This is the way I asked him. And he thought for a minute and he looked at me and he said, okay, let me put it this way chemical farming, industrial farming is like the left hand and organic farming is the right hand. Natural farming has nothing to do with either one. And he said it's because they both want to make use of nature strictly for human benefit. And it's the same mindset. It's just the organic farmer thinks that it's more practical and handier to use organic materials than the other guys the chemical materials. But it still comes from
0: the same mindset, so now my my uh, rough interpretation of that is that one technique completely rapes nature, and then Fukuoka's technique is more like um i'm is, is going to um, give nature a little boost, so it's like everything's basically nature's way of doing things, but just he goes in and makes minor little tweaks here and there and and nature therefore enjoys it and sings. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the uh, wonderful uses of natural farming, as Fukuoka practiced it, is that it's a rehabilitation technique. It's what The goal is to undo the damage that people have done, and so nature has the ability to do what it does so well, which is be itself. And people can just, once nature, you just kind of go along for the ride. People can't improve upon nature every time we try to do that there's there's a side effect because our brain and the way we analyze the way we see the world is it's incomplete it's not anything like a subtle we don't understand anything really you know we and so with our limited intellect we try to use nature for our benefit, and the only thing that can possibly happen is that it won't work as well. That's a, more or less his point of view. And then you get a side effect, and so people have to deal with the side effect, and they fix the side effect. How's oh, everything okay.
2: here? Good. It good. good. <clears throat> can I get the to Give you guys some social There. Back on
1: so we, we try, try things, and then comes the invariable bad side effect, and then we have to fix that, and then another side effect, and each time it gets bigger and bigger, and finally we don't even remember where we started, and all we're doing is mitigating problems from
0: what we had done before. All right, so <clears throat> while, while Larry uh, puts food in his mouth, I'm going to um, try and fill in a couple of gaps here. So. We are in Ashland, Oregon, visiting with Larry Corn. Uh um uh Larry uh did a lot of work with um ag stuff and organic and his passion about way beyond organic. And then uh when he was a, a young pup he uh just he, he heard about this fella that was doing things that were even um further down the path than what he was doing and uh he, he ended up interning there, uh, working on that farm for two years. And then he uh then <clears throat> uh, uh worked with Fukuoka uh which was you know, of course it was Fukuoka's farm, and then he worked with Fukuoka to do the translation of one straw revolution so uh the the book by Fukuoka so it's it, and, so it's now in English, thanks to larry and um
1: and twenty five other languages
0: and then twenty five other languages all from our english translation oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's I didn't know that part. Six languages in India alone.
1: Uh, okay. Oh my. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, so, d- didn't even uh, once One Straw Revolution was published in English, then it, the word spread about it around the world, and the book it got started getting translated into many other languages. And the place in the world where there's more interest in, in this man and his way of farming than anywhere else is India and also other parts of Southeast Asia and really it shouldn't be surprising since even though it is an agricultural technique that's just an example to point to what is essentially a spiritual philosophy and the people of India are that is pretty much their core culture is spirituality first and so they saw that right away and embraced it. Do you want to talk about the vegetable growing? <clears throat>
0: oh, the um, the question. How are you doing on time? Uh, good. Okay. So uh, before we talk about that, please. um, I'd like to hear um, um, you talk about um, Fukuoka's Now, now so, so one of the things is is that um, I, I believe that a lot of Fukuoka's works are remarkably similar to Step Holzer's works. And you have a little bit of knowledge of Holzer's works, and of course a lot of knowledge about Foucault's works. And um, I'm, I am uh, just charmed to the bone that, that so much of their stuff, they, they, they followed nature very closely. So their, their techniques were to follow nature, do it in nature's way as close as you can, and then just give nature the little bits that really make nature same. Uh, and to do as little as possible where you get the big, the big return. Um and they're and and they both came to a lot of the same conclusions without that that were radically different from everything else. Um and, and so I really kinda think that they're both you know, geniuses. Um and uh um but one of those things is, is about pruning fruit trees and, 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 and fruit tree care and tree care in general. Um and, and I'm kinda hoping that maybe you can share some knowledge in that space. Sure. Um, And and I'm glad uh, to go on and on about introducing you to that, that gives you a chance to eat your food before it gets too cold. uh
1: (laughs) So when Fukuoka had this inspiration, he decided to apply it to agriculture, and he he went back. He had no idea what the technique would look like, nobody had ever tried this before. So he went back to his father's farm and he lived in a hut in the orchard. And he said, well, if nature is perfect, why don't I just
2: not prune these trees and just
1: leave it to nature, since it knows much better than I do. And within about three years, he had wiped out about uh, over 200 trees. And that's because the trees had been pruned already. And once the p- they had been affected by human activity, then people have the responsibility to maintain them. And if they don't, you know, nature just, you can't, repair itself after that kind of treatment and the branches crossed and diseases and insects and the light and air couldn't get through and the trees died so then he got the idea that um, if a tree were allowed to grow according to its natural form from the beginning and not pruned at all then that seems to be superior that's the way a tree would naturally want to grow but what is the natural form of a tree So, he started thinking about that and realized that fruit trees have been, um, people have domesticated fruit trees way beyond most of the trees that you see in the forest. In fact, he said, I don't know if anybody actually really knows what the true form of an apple or a pear tree is. He went into the forest and he looked at native trees and how they grew and studied the form and he saw that the branches you know, that the tree grows in a you know, with a slight spiraling uh, growth pattern and that the branches come out either in whorls or opposite each other, and depending on the species. And so following that natural form from the beginning, you, you shouldn't have to prune then. It seems like you would never have to prune the tree again. And that's what he did. He didn't... Uh, most people get the trees from the nursery and the main leader has already been snipped. That's 99 percent. In fact, it's always the case, unless you have an arrangement with the grower not to do that. So by the time you get the tree stock from the nursery, you're you're already stuck with the need to prune forever. But if you get it growing from its natural form at the beginning, and then occasionally branches of course will might get damaged by environmental conditions or by, you know, uh, animals or snow or something like that. So the only pruning that one would do would be to help the tree get back to its natural form. And trees that had already been pruned, it's the same thing. That all the cuts you make is to try to imitate, get it back as close as possible to the natural form.
0: Now, for my own um, devious wants and, and plots and whatever, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I'm I've I've uh, been um, writing about a lot lately uh, has to do with uh, starting trees from seed. And, and granted, you know, and, and, and usually that's a big red flag for a lot of people. Uh, you're not going to get something that's, you know, this ultimate tree. But but on the other hand, you eliminate all the grafting. You eliminate a lot of the work. And then you you do end up with a tree that's close to nature. And granted, some of the fruit sometimes you know, but this is also something for larger properties. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't probably want to be doing this if you just are on a city lot. Um, uh, but you'd want to. Um, but on a large properties, you go out and you you plant uh, a thousand fruit tree seeds, uh, and and then uh, you know 20% of them turn out to be spinners. Then no problem. That's that's big food uh And then, on the other hand, twenty percent of them typically turn out to be really great, and uh you know, but then they're they're not anything that would be a variety that anybody would recognize um but uh um i so i'm i kind of think, well, that's one way, but what would be like what did Fukuoka do for uh um fruit tree reproduction did i mean i'm I'm guessing he didn't graft, but maybe he did
1: well first of all, with the growing uh, trees from seed, he loved that. He said, "Oh, the growing—it's so much better to grow from seed. But if you have a—if you make your living with the commercial orchard, then it just doesn't work to have because the you know 95% of them are not very productive. But they maintain the diversity. He had trees grown from seed all over the orchard, just not the main. But he never expected to harvest them." He would test them and and so forth. But otherwise, yeah, you're right. It's just food for the wildlife. And what's wrong with that? So
2: So a lot of his fruit trees were citrus. Yes.
1: Well, the commercial, that's how he made the bulk of his living with this 10-acre citrus orchard. About five different types of uh, (laughs) mandarin oranges and mainly satsuma. Satsuma, by the way, is a region in southern Japan some were big like grapefruits, and some were very much like oranges. But the main one was this kind of mandarin orange. Uh, and these were, for the most part, grafted varieties. But he he um, had an arrangement with his grower to not do any pruning. You know, so that the so that so all the trees that he planted after he had this he saw that the. Um, that he wanted to grow trees that wouldn't have to be pruned, which was about five years into his, uh, you know, uh, setting, then the key was to get seedlings that hadn't been touched in the nursery.
0: So, now, so Jocelyn, we got a question from somebody. Um, and then uh, it's from uh, one of the readers out at Hermes.com. who he posted out the tinkering forum uh, for this podcast and um, how to start seed prep. So, well, do we have the actual question? Do we,
1: yep.
0: do you remember it? Yeah. You know okay, so, so Larry remembers the question, now he's going to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, Well, basically the question was about the details
1: of how uka grew san um, grew vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees, something that he called growing vegetables like wild plants. And how do you get started with something like that? Well, it, it, it really depends on the climate and your local conditions, but I can describe what Fukuoka did in a relatively mild climate with a lot of thunderstorms during the summer. If he would have just taken seed and thrown it onto the bare ground that he found when he first came there, this, uh, all the tops, there was no topsoil in the orchard. It had all been eroded away. So to throw vegetable seed on bare red clay will not work. So his first step—the birds
0: would probably eat it if nothing else. Yeah. yeah.
1: Or they'll dry out, or it's too hard. The roots couldn't, the right. root couldn't penetrate, and they, 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 so his first step in the orchard was to uh, use soil-building ground cover to improve the soil and to re to get the to create topsoil. And he did that by starting out with deep-rooted plants that would physically go stick their nose way down deep into the soil and make a channel. Uh, And that would be uh, things like uh, burdock and dandelion and uh, daikon daikon was a big one. Yeah, that was his favorite. Those (laughs) are like spikes. Those are like spikes. Then, so then um, he also put in uh, plants that created a lot of, uh, were also penetrated, but not as a single spike. And they, but like um, all the all the radish family, daikon has the big, you know the, the jumbo. The, yeah, but there's lots of others. The mustard is is great for cleaning the soil and for getting it going. And buckwheat, buckwheat was a big favorite of his uh, for a soil improvement. Buckwheat is really really good. And then of course we wanted to introduce a legume. Not for nitrogen fixing. So what he did was he, and that was he found white clover worked out the best.
0: Did you just say not for nitrogen fixing? No, for oh, for yeah. nitrogen. Yeah,
1: okay. For right. nitrogen fixing. So yes. it's a group. Well, when you yes. think about this group, what a great combination for building topsoil. And the beauty is that it's no work. There's very little work. Where you just pretty scatter much the scatter seeds. the seeds. And using seeds for soil building is really the way to go, especially if you have any size land at all. Maybe if you're in a backyard right outside the back door, then these labor-intensive techniques make some sense. But once you get into big spaces, you don't want to be like making compost and spreading compost and all of that. You just want to be scattering seeds.
0: Especially these days, I mean, not only is it a lot of work, but these days a lot of people are like bringing organic matter onto their land from someplace else. And, it's, and 99% of the time it's tainted with something you don't want.
1: And you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. And right. you've got to produce everything, if you can, make it a closed system, produce everything you need right on the land. So then, then if you have to bring stuff in, that requires a lot of work. Then, of course, the other side of that is if you create too much of something, then
2: that's
1: called pollution. <laughs> that's a permaculture principle. But Fukuoka also believed, he talked about the closed system and how he didn't want to be have to depend on... Anyone else, at least not outside the village, because there's a few things like making uh, uh, vegetable oil or soy sauce. that really, a village scale makes sense because it's
2: like,
1: to make everybody making small batches is, is not efficient. But, you know, neighbors getting together, that's fine. But mainly, like 90%, 95% grown right on your property. So once this this has gotten going, and you've got some topsoil to work with, and you've got a ground cover, then you can start trying the vegetables. And what Fukuoka didn't, he wanted to bypass that process that people do when they plant vegetables, which is, you know, the tomatoes, they like the sunny and I'm gonna put them here, and this vegetable likes these conditions, so I'm gonna put them there. That is using the human mind to make decisions when he would rather have nature tell him. Because our thinking, so one thing, it's so, I mean, how do we really know where these vegetables are gonna go well, and what about the, you know, I've been thinking that tomatoes needed a lot of sun for so long, I forgot where I heard that. There's a lot of agriculture that's like that. Why do people plow? Why do people grow rice in a flooded field? People have just forgotten why they started doing it, and now they feel like they have to do it. So he mixes up the seeds of all the different vegetables and scatters them out in the ground cover, and then he cuts the ground cover and lets it just... Drop, you know, cut and drop, you know, just leaves it there to act as a mulch, and so the seeds come up wherever they come up. Nature points out where the best place for radish and the best place for some things. He transplants from little starters, and that would be tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and these are plants that he uh, he said they they've received so much attention horticulturally that they're. Basically, much weaker than the other vegetables, and they need a little start. And you need to kind of cut the ground cover away and give, get give them a chance to grow up a little bit. And he grew squashes and other things. Just let them ramble over branches and up tree trunks. You never prune grapes. Grapes, he, he just—I mean, there's one grape plant that was incredibly. Long. I mean, you'd go hike, 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 hike to get to the end of it because it had grown all the way down along in the forest trees, And it was producing grapes and it was constant surprise, actually, when you're walking through the orchard you kick something in
0: the weeds and go, oh, there's squash. I didn't know there was a squash here. So now, <clears throat> Fukuoka is pretty famous for doing a lot with seed balls. But exactly. That's but it. now, did he use seed balls for this? He did for some, he okay. did for some things. Um, Some things would do fine without the seed balls. Some
1: would do, many, many would do fine without the seed balls. But some, I'm thinking um, soybeans and other beans like that. And you put seed balls around uh, squash and uh, other cucurbits, cucumber. You put seed balls around that. That's just a process of encasing the seeds in clay with a little bit of compost in the clay and then let it dry out. So you, you throw that out, and it's protected from the insects, and it's it's it, the seed won't sprout until it gets rain, and then it's got this little packet, a survival packet, besides what's in the seed, then it's got a, the, the seed ball, it's like a survival packet. It really, really increases um, success, yes, yeah, success. And people are using that. Uh, gorilla gardeners have really picked up on that. And in the cities, that you know, for, like, seeding over chain-link f- fences into... Uh, Abandoned and, and spaces like uh, parking strips and,
2: yeah. you know,
1: just... So uh, seed balls really, really help. You can,
0: you can turn it into a lush garden just by pitching these yeah. seed balls over the fence. It's, it's kind of funny. Well,
1: it just shows you how strong they are.
0: You know, before I forget, I want to just pop back to what we were talking about before just a little bit. Um... And 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 that was with the trees. You were saying something about how, what is the true shape of, say, an apple tree.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I don't I don't believe you you expressed that. And so maybe folks would like to hear about if you grow an apple tree from seed,
2: mm-hmm.
0: what does it look like? Okay. Which is of course radically different from what we're used to an apple tree looking like. Um.
2: Yeah.
1: If you grow an apple tree from seed, then. The the tree, well, apple tree is already, you're using a seed from a plant that has been, had the, quote, benefit of human horticultural, you know, people messing with it. But it grows up to, it's first of all, it's not on rootstock of different sizes, so you control the size of it. They generally grow up much larger. And his ungrafted trees, incidentally, do grow up larger than average trees. A lot of the pruning, most of the pruning that people do is to keep the plants low for the ease of harvesting. In fact, almost all the pruning is all about the ease of harvesting. And he doesn't mind climbing up into the trees to harvest. And if you can't quite get to the top, it's for the wildlife. What's the, I mean, what's the problem? He's not going for maximum yield. So the tree will grow up with a single central leader, and the branches will come out either opposite each other or in a whirling pattern, and the this allows the light to, and the air to circulate and pass through all, all the leaves, get sunlight directly that way. And the air can go through it. It's just much healthier, much stronger-growing tree. So
0: now, would you say that? Um, I mean, to me, one of the one of the big indicators is is the branches, and 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 where the branches are. And it seems to me like a lot of times the branches are. I mean, you got branches right next to the ground, actually so low to the ground that they're actually touching the ground, which is uh, one of the big th- changes. And then it ends up looking like, instead of like looking like a popsicle shape with no branches and a, a trunk, uh, you end up with something that looks more like a, a, a younger trees look like bushes, kind yeah. of. So You're to say, yeah, into the microphone. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's, <laughs> yes, that's right. Um,
1: by the way, this there's a whole discussion of this, in not in the One Star Revolution, but in the natural yes. way of farming which I believe is out of print, but you can find copies and you can find it on the Internet. He does, it goes into detail about how he feels about pruning and this whole process and how he developed the no pruning idea and how he we went out into the forest and just meditated and sat there studying how trees grow, which is, you know, when you think about his technique in general how did he know where he was he had no idea where he was going and he just observed it's all about observation and he would try things and he would see what worked he never he didn't care so much about what didn't work he looked at what worked and then that was an indication to go that way and it was like going through doors or into you know going around the path and not having no idea what you were going to find around the next corner
0: the key is observation. You said it. So he was he was leaning heavily on observation. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at com, where we talk about Masanobu Fukuoka, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.